0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Medina East campus. Uh, Thank you guys so much for being out here for our services this morning as we continue in a series that we have been in throughout the course of our entire summer here together, uh, a series that we have called Grow. And so, if you're just joining us throughout the series, what we've been doing is we have been taking what we might call a concerted look at what the Bible has to say specifically about spiritual growth. And how spiritual growth happens in people who place their faith in Jesus, how they receive a new identity and a new life in Christ, and then learn to kind of commit to follow him in his teachings. And so throughout this series, what we've been doing in kind of in order to do that or to connect with some of those principles, we've been walking through the book of Colossians and we've been discovering that Colossians itself, this book, uh, contains not only the ingredients or what we might call the essentials. Of spiritual growth, kind of the what we need to know to grow spiritually. But also we have discovered as we've walked through this book that even the way the book is structured itself, kind of the way it unfolds from start to finish, also gives us this idea that there is a progression or there is a movement that those ingredients fit into, kind of like a strategy and a movement to that spiritual growth. So basically what we've been saying is that Colossians contains the ingredients and that movement of learning to place faith in Jesus, receiving a new life, learning how to live in that new life and grow in that new life. And then kind of culminating as Clark talked last week in this idea that we actually as followers of Jesus can uh, share the opportunity for others to be able to connect in that life with Jesus as well to kind of as it were share our faith with others. And so actually today what we're going to do is we are going to uh, look in Colossians chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're actually going to close the book down itself today. So we're going to read the very last chunk or that very last passage in the book of Colossians. I will say that the next couple of weeks we are going to kind of linger in this series grow a little bit and uh, for those couple of weeks what we're going to do is we're going to look back into some of the things that we have uh, pulled out of the book of Colossians uh, throughout the course of our summer in this series grow and we're going to look to kind of take some of those big ticket items, some of those ingredients in that movement, we're going to look to synthesize it a little bit together and uh, really fortify ourselves with an understanding of spiritual growth walking away from this series so that uh, as as the series itself receives its expiration date, as it were, uh, that we can still have some uh, core principles that we can bank on, even after we walk away from the series, that we can uh, check out that way. But uh, again, as I mentioned, what we're going to do is we're going to shut the book itself down today. So if you brought your Bibles, we're actually going to dive right in this morning to our passage. If you brought your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7-7. Through 18. So Colossians 4 verses 7 through 18. Uh, and as some of you are flipping there in your Bibles or if you're kind of navigating to the appropriate app on your smartphone to get there, let me just say for those of you that uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, or don't have access to a Bible, that's okay, it's totally fine. We're actually going to put the words up on the screen or the text up on the screen of that passage behind me this morning. And also we have some Bibles under the seats in front of you, if you want to read along uh, together with us as we kind of chart our course through this today. And uh, as you, again, as you continue to flip there, I w- I'll also say this, that if you don't have a Bible um, or if you have uh, some archaic, outdated translation of a Bible with a bunch of these and thous that uh, doesn't really connect with you and you kind of don't understand it, uh, what we want you to do is just take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. Just take that home with you today. Just consider it our way of saying not only thank you for being here, But as our gift to you to help you, uh, we want you to connect with God's word in that way. So again, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. And real quick, one last thing I'll say before we dive in. Uh, the passage that we're going to read today is going to be a little bit interesting. We're going uh, to see a lot of names that appear in this passage, and it's going to feel like um, we're kind of peering into some relationships that the Apostle Paul has with a bunch of names that we have in this passage, the Apostle Paul being the dude or the guy who uh, writes the book of Colossians. And so let me just say this. The passage that we're going to examine today uh, would have been very common or customary in uh, Paul's day and his culture because the book of Colossians itself is uh, more so a... A letter than anything else. It's we call it the book of Colossians, but it is very much a letter. Other people call it, you may have heard this term before, they call it an epistle. And all an epistle is is basically a letter from one individual <clears throat> to a group of people that was intended to be read aloud to that group of people. And so basically at the end here, what we're getting are a bunch of salutations, like a kind of a bunch of, hey, how are you's uh, from Paul to certain individuals uh, in the Colossian church. So i just warning you here as we go through it, that's kind of what we're going to get. A lot of names here, but we'll burrow through it, make some observations, and then, uh, then move on that way. So again, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, it says this, Tychicus, will tell yeah. A name right off the bat, right? Tychicus. Has anybody ever named their child Tychicus? I don't know. Uh, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, again, this is not Jesus of Nazareth, this is someone different. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature <clears throat> and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Am I doing an okay job pronouncing these names, by the way? <laughs> uh, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. All right, so let's be honest. Just be honest with me for a second. How many of you now knowing this section of Colossians, if you were to ever read Colossians again, would be tempted to skip right over this passage. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think it's, uh, we're tempted to skip over this passage probably because it seems like or it feels like there are a bunch of relationships that Paul has with these people that he's writing to. that It seems like there's some relational history there that we are just not privy to. We're like not given the information that we feel like we need in order to really understand what Paul is doing here when he's interacting with some of these relationships. It's kind of like, if you can think of it, if you've ever had one of those awkward moments where you have been to some kind of party or social gathering, and uh, it feels like every single other person in the room has some relational context or history with each other, And you're the only person in the room that doesn't understand all the inside jokes that are flying back and forth in the room, right? So it's like you go to this party and then you hear one guy call across the room to another guy, hey, Jerry, (laughs) Uh, careful with the frosted flakes, man, right? (laughs) Yeah. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And for that matter, how could you get weird and funky with frosted flakes? That's just kind of strange. And so you're like, am I missing something? Should I have read up on some manual before coming to the party about all the things that I should know in order to be able to interact with people? And it just feels strange, and it feels awkward. And I think, for most of us, if we're honest, it probably feels the same as we're walking into this passage here today. You're like, what do I do with this? Um, Should I know something more? Is there something more in the Bible? And for that matter, I think the more important question is this, right? It leads us to, How in the world would this at all be applicable to my life here in 21st century America as a person who lives here? I mean, is there anything here that is usable at all? Or would we be completely justified in skipping right over this section because it's just a bunch of hey, how are you's and inside jokes flying back and forth? And i got to tell you, if that's you, I get it. I get it completely. And actually, I've not only been there in places like this in the Bible, but sometimes I'm still tempted just to jump right over these salutations at the end of, this, at the end of these letters. But let me just tell you, if, if you don't mind, give me a couple minutes. Let me tell you a story about, uh, about what happens if you give up on something too soon and the utter pain and, ang- and agony that you will experience for the rest of your life because you gave up on it. Too soon, Okay. So how many of you guys remember a couple months ago from this little thing that happened in Cleveland that the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship? That little thing? Yeah. Okay, apparently just a few of you, right? So the Cavs, right, they won the NBA championship, but you guys remember the circumstances surrounding the Cavs winning the championship, right? They were down three games to one in the NBA finals, and not only were they down three games to one, which seems like an insurmountable task, But they were also down three games to one to that juggernaut team, the Golden State Warriors, who had made the Cavs look utterly, just be honest, utterly silly in in the first four games that they played. And so this was no small task. The Cavs are down 3-1. And um, for me, as I thought about this, when they went down 3-1, when they lost game four in Cleveland and looked pretty silly doing it, I thought, that's it. It's done. Their season is over. This is the latest in a series of almosts, right, for Cleveland sports. It's, it's done. I close the book on it, and I resolve in my heart of hearts to not watch another game of the NBA Finals. Because they're done, right? Completely toast. And so game five rolls around, and we've had to play that in Oakland. And we won, and I was, uh, honestly, I was a little surprised by that, but I thought, okay, well, that's just because the all-star center on the Warriors, he was suspended for that game, so good try, Cavs, you you put up a fight, but you're done, still not watching any games. Then game six rolls around, and the Cavs win at home, and they they won handily, they looked actually really good doing this, and I thought, okay, well, that's interesting, but still, it's not happening, and then I, I remember talking with a few guys in my life group after we were connecting one time. And they were like, hey, this is awesome. This is going to be great. We're going to win. We're going to do this. And I was like, guys, calm down. Just calm it down for a second. There is no way. And I said, listen, mark my words. This is what's going to happen. This is the latest, again, in a series of, like, Cleveland sports devilry where somehow Cleveland sports teams get our, get our hopes up so high and then they come crashing down. The drive, the shot, the fumble, the move, the decision, you name it. Jose Mesa in the ninth inning, game seven of the World Series, 1997. I'm telling you, I was like, guys, that's what's happening. Steph Curry's going to fade back. Uh, at the closing seconds, hit a three, and we are all going to return to our pain and agony, Right? And so the guys are like, okay, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, and we're going to throw a party. So I was invited to this party along with a bunch of, uh, uh, of the folks from my life group, and uh, it was going to be awesome. Like, they were going to have great drinks there. A lot of people were going to be there. They were going to smoke excessive amounts of delicious brisket. It was going to be awesome. And uh, it just seems like it was a fantastic night, and they were going to project game seven on the outside of a garage door. So it was going to be like a community affair. And so I was invited and I just uh, respectfully said, no, absolutely not. I am not watching this game because I know what's going to happen. And uh, so they, they returned and they replied and they said, listen, isn't, can't you just do it for the biblical community? I'm like, nope, (laughs) nope. I can't do it for the biblical community. And so Actually, my wife and my kids, they went without me. Yeah, I'm, yeah, parent and spouse of the year award right here. So, my wife and kids, they went without me. And here's what I did I spent three hours on a Sunday night at game seven sitting in my bed doing homework. <laughs> Nerd, right? So, here's what happened. When I'm sitting in my bed, I'm doing homework there. It was about 9, 10 at night. I remember it very vividly. My uh, bedroom window was open because it was a beautiful night, and I'm sitting there doing homework, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like, excessive jubilant screaming starts to rise up from outside of my window. People start to run down the sidewalks of my neighborhood screaming and yelling, and then what followed was what was clearly like some home-launched fireworks. <laughs> it, was, it was obvious. And so these things, and I, th- I thought, no, 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 this, this is not happening. I rushed out to ESPN.com, and sure enough, right there in the front, the Cleveland Cavaliers won, and they were NBA champions. And I got to tell you, I like leapt out of bed. My, lap, my laptop fell off the bed. It was not a good scene. I ran around the interior of my house like three or four times because I was so excited. And then I went to that open window, and I just started screaming things. They weren't even like <laughs> intelligible words. It was like, yeah, 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 cabs! you know, stuff like that. And uh, I was, I was, uh, my heartbeat was racing, and uh, my heart was racing. And so that happened for about 10 minutes. But about 10 minutes later, as things started to settle down in me and outside, I realized I missed it. I missed it, right? 50-plus years of <laughs> Cleveland sports futility. Seriously, I missed it. Why? I had given up too soon. I had closed the book on the Cavaliers before things were actually done. And I think what happens to us when we approach a book like Colossians, when we approach a passage like this, we might be tempted to do the same thing, but we absolutely can't. We can't shut the book of Colossians until it's fully finished, because it has something to say to us, things that are very profound. And like an Olympic runner that runs a race, and uh, if they pull up too soon, similarly, Like, if we pull up too soon in this, we could miss gold in here. We really could. And so, but if we're willing to do, like, some really hard work to unearth some of the background and the context and maybe observe how Paul tended to interact with not only the people that are here in this passage, but how Paul interacted with others as well, I think we are going to discover a really profound capstone to this book that affirms and gives an example of everything that the Apostle Paul has been trying to communicate to us throughout the book in this area or this idea of spiritual growth. And so here's what I want to do. Let's zero in back in on the passage here for a second. And uh, let's look at this. There are ten names that Paul lists in this particular section in Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Ten names. So, Listen, if we were to do an in-depth study on each one of these names that Paul lists here, uh, we would be here all day and all night. And certainly we don't have uh, the time to be able to do that. That's kind of outside the boundary lines of the time that we've allotted for ourselves this morning. So let me just say this. Let me just... um, let me just give you kind of like what would be a, a, a thematic overview of how Paul would interact in relationships in general and how undoubtedly he interacted with the relationships that we see in this passage. And I would probably say this. We've probably got to keep this in mind, that above all else, when Paul was interacting with people who were followers of Jesus and encouraging them, Paul always saw it very fit to equip and mobilize hosts of Christ followers in order to get the transformative message of Jesus out abroad to his wider world, to his Roman world. And so what Paul would do when he would establish a relationship, when someone would come to know Jesus, Paul would pour himself out and invest in people, train them up, equip them, and then release them to the wider Roman world so that the message about Jesus, this message of the gospel, could go out in kind of like this exponential way. And Paul was super strategic with this, and he was so brilliant that even when he's sitting in prison, which, by the way, when he writes the epistle to the Colossians, that's where he is. He's in a prison, and most scholars think that he was in a prison in Rome waiting uh, for a trial before Caesar, that even while he's in prison in Rome, the gospel message that followers of Jesus could be mobilized and equipped to take that message out to the wider world, that even though Paul was in prison, the gospel message wasn't in chains. It was released to go out to the wider world. And so, although this is the case for probably all the names, that's a good backdrop for all the names that we encounter in this particular passage, what I want to do is maybe focus in or zero in on one particular name that appears in this list, because I think it does a really good job of illustrating this principle. And that name is this guy, Epaphras. Epaphras. So, Smack dab in the middle of uh, Paul's greetings or salutations, we get this name, Epaphras. Well, you might ask the question, why Epaphras? What's so special about him? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons, but first and foremost, a glaring reason is that uh, most New Testament scholars, it's the near unanimous testimony of New Testament scholars that it was actually Epaphras who established the church in Colossae, that Epaphras established the church in Colossae because Paul had actually never been to the city of Colossae. He had never interacted face-to-face with the believers there, the believers in Jesus there. And so um, most scholars think they kind of are trying to paint a picture that Epaphras was a native of Colossae. he's kind of born and raised there. And then at some point, Epaphras heard about this guy Paul and the message that he was preaching, and it intrigued him so much that he decided to travel about 100 miles west ...to a city called Ephesus when Paul was there preaching the gospel. Epaphras traveled there to hear Paul. And after hearing Paul, he responded to the message that Paul gave. Uh, committed to faith in Jesus, became a disciple of Jesus. And that like Paul, like was Paul's M.O., Paul started to invest in this guy. He started to equip him. He started to train him. He started to pour into him such that that training and that equipping materialized in Epaphras eventually being released by Paul, to go back to Colossae and preach the message of the gospel in that city. And as the result of Epaphras preaching that message of the gospel, people came to new life in Jesus, a church was built, and Epaphras, again, is the person that establishes all this in that city. And actually, Colossians 1-7, if we look back earlier in the book, confirms some of these suspicions or this story that New Testament scholars give us. Colossians 1-7 says, you, Paul, saying this to the Colossians, you learned it, meaning the gospel, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who told us of your love in the Spirit. And then again, in the passage that we read, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this, I vouch for him, I vouch for Epaphras, that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis." See, the reality is, is when Epaphras came back to Colossae and he told the story of Jesus and built a church there, he didn't stop there. There were close by cities of Laodicea and Heropolis that Epaphras also went to, did the same thing, and now an entire tri-city area in this place, in this region called the Lycus Valley in modern southwestern Turkey, all of a sudden churches are being planted and established in these cities as a result of Paul pouring into this guy Epaphras, releasing him to go back and preach the same message that Paul preached. And I think this background is particularly helpful for us as we start to navigate maybe one by one at some of the phrases or the language that Paul uses of Epaphras in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. So right off the bat, Paul says that Epaphras, right, is one of you, Colossians. Well, again, with the background, that makes sense for a couple reasons. The first reason is that Epaphras was a native of Colossae. He was a Colossian. But even deeper than that, Paul is saying to the Colossian believers as he writes that he's also one of you because he is a Christ follower. And he is kind of like the one who planted the church and first gave you this gospel message. And so I find this interesting because Epaphras, because of all this background and the fact that Paul says he was one of you, Epaphras is both a church planter, but he's also a pastor, So in a church planner, he builds up a church, he establishes a church in Colossae, but he stays there for a while, making sure that, like Paul did with him, making sure that that, that he is pouring into other people, teaching them and training them in the message about Jesus, and then probably building them up to the point where eventually some of them would be released into the wider world to share that same message. Interesting to me that when Paul gets a hold of Epaphras and that relationship starts to sync up, Paul was a church planner, Paul was a pastor, and now all of a sudden, Epaphras is a church planner, and Epaphras is a pastor. And if we start thinking about this as we walk through some of, again, the phrases that Paul uses about Epaphras, look at what he says. He says then that Epaphras is, he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. So, Paphras is a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, this is very interesting because the term servant itself on the surface simply means someone responds to a command of a Lord and they do work on behalf of that Lord who issued the command. So at the very least, what we can say is that, Epaphras, is that Epaphras is a servant of Christ Jesus, meaning he responds to the command of Jesus to make the gospel message known to the people in Colossae. And that's, that's actually one way of understanding this. But it's interesting. If you start to dig back a little bit into uh, the Old Testament usage of the word servant, of this particular word, you discover that this word was used for, for hugely like, notable guys In the Old Testament, guys like Moses and Joshua, guys like David, and it was actually used for like a host of other prophets. And all of these guys were were in the Old Testament. They were commissioned by God to deliver some sort of strategic word to the people that they were serving, used by God to deliver some kind of specific word that God wanted to convey or to communicate to the people that they were serving. So more than just a pat on the back or a, hey, great job, Epaphras, Paul is kind of alluding to the fact that Epaphras is the last now in the line of like a spiritual lineage of guys that are like speaking the message of God to people and connecting it in their context, this message about new life in Jesus and the possibility of rescue and salvation that that message brings. And it's also interesting that Paul never just flippantly distributes this phrase, servant of Christ Jesus, to anybody. As a matter of fact, most often in the New Testament, in Paul's letters when he writes, most often Paul uses this phrase, servant of Christ Jesus, to refer to himself. And you could see this in places like Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1, Paul is more often than not referring to himself when he says someone is a servant of Christ Jesus. And then Paul tells us that Epaphras, he says, is wrestling in prayer for you. Well, this term wrestling is very interesting in the original language. In the original Greek, it is this word agonizomai, agonizomai. And agonizomai is literally where we get our word, our English word, agony. And so agonizomai had its uh, connections to athletes that were either running a race or were in some kind of arena. And the idea was that the athlete would agonizomai in training. They would suffer a lot of pain and toil and hardship because they had a goal. They had a finish line to cross. And also when they were in the race, it would be said that athletes would agonizomai throughout the race to get to the finish line. And it's interesting that Paul uses this particular word here that this word has about Epaphras, because this word has already appeared back in chapter 1, verse 29, ready? Where Paul says, for this, meaning presenting people mature in Christ, getting people across the finish line of their faith. Paul says, for this, he says, I strenuously contend. Now, the NIV doesn't do much to help us here, because this, these two words, strenu- stren- ah, Sorry, strenuously contend, is actually the same word. This word is agonizomai. So he says, Paul says, For this I agonizomai with all the energy Christ powerfully works within me. Do You start to see some of the correlations that are happening here. If we speed through uh, the next few phrases of what Paul says about Epaphras... He says that Epaphras struggles so that the Colossians, quote, may stand firm in all the will of God, and he uses this word, mature. mature. So, right, so Paul's mission from the get-go has been to present people, back in 128, he says, to, he's like, my mission is to present people mature in Christ, and the purpose of maturity is for the Colossians to uh, be fully assured in the will of God by Epaphras' work here in chapter 4. Or more specifically, the word-for-word translation is to be, to be filled with assurance in the will of God. So it's this imagery of like a container that is filled to the absolute brim with something. Well, right, again, Paul's prayer for the Colossians already was that God fill you. Same word was that God fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will. Paul says about Epaphras in chapter 4 that Epaphras is working hard, not only for those in Colossae, but for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Well, Paul again has already described, he says, how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. See, this is fascinating to me, and it's powerful. You see, Paul, in a short commendation at the end of Colossians, one that we might be tempted to pass up, skip, or throw away, in a simple set of greetings, Paul shows us that the outcome of one's spiritual growth in Christ, the outcome of their maturity, growing up in Christ, looks like multiplication and reproduction. Growing up in Christ looks like multiplication and reproduction. This is exactly what Paul was doing with Epaphras. And probably what he was doing with the host of names that we get in the surrounding context here in chapter 4. We can can dream of these images of Paul intentionally, relationally, investing his whole life into Epaphras. Pouring pouring himself out so that Epaphras could grow spiritually spiritually. And it's likely that Paul was investing to such a degree that he would be encouraging Epaphras constantly. He would probably rebuke him when Epaphras was going the wrong way. He he would probably correct Epaphras when he was just slightly missing the mark. Come on, buddy, you can do this. He probably labored and strived over uh, Epaphras and uh, the work that he was doing in the Colossian and they probably contended together for these things. They probably solved the problems of life and ministry. They processed these things together. They engaged in the same struggles and the same conflicts. And how do we know this? Well, we don't know it because Paul comes out and specifically says it. But we know it and can stand confident that, the, that at the end of a book where Paul has gone to great lengths to talk about spiritual growth and its culmination, that Paul gives us an example that Epaphras's life and his ministry looks exactly like Paul's life and ministry. It's just really obvious when we come to the end of this book that Paul was reproducing himself in Epaphras, multiplying himself in Epaphras. And, and it might actually be better said something like this, that, that Paul was being a catalyst to produce in Epaphras what the gospel had already produced in him. Let me say that again. That Paul was a catalyst to produce in Epaphras what the gospel had already produced in him. This embracing of a new life, this growing and learning the habits of the life that Jesus has given us and growing up in the faith. Guys, this was Paul's M.O. This was, this was his strategy. And in other places in his letters, uh, most specifically in First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says things like this. Guys, here's what I want you to do. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. This, this Paul-Epaphras relationship is a shining example of this strategy of the Apostle Paul. See, Paul is actively making disciples of Jesus by investing all of his energies into this guy to support, to equip, and to release him to grow in Christ. And see, at the Medina East Campus, what we've tried to do, we want to go all in. We want to double down on this idea of discipleship. And that's really essentially what we see Paul doing here. This language of follow me as I follow Christ is the language of discipleship. And, and simply put, discipleship is, is responding to faith in Jesus and making a resolute commitment to follow him and to have his life start to materialize in concrete ways in our minds and the way we think and our behaviors and what we do. Having that life start to materialize in our lives so we start to actually look like Jesus. And at our campus, again, We are so resolute. We are so confident that discipleship, disciple-making, is the method that Jesus prescribed for his followers to continue pouring out the message into other people. Not only those who are around us in our day and age, but those who will come after us in future generations. That disciples of Jesus are disciples that make disciples, that make disciples, that make disciples, and say follow me guys, and so far as I am growing spiritually, follow me as I follow Christ. Now we, have, we are so bought into this idea at the Medina East Campus that, that we've even tried to make a graphic to, to help us out with some of these concepts. So here, uh, some of you may have seen this, this is the, this is the discipleship pathway is what we call it. And really, again, all it's trying to do is to illustrate some of these principles. And so you look here in this pathway. you got a guy who looks a little shady over there on the left. This guy comes to faith in Jesus. And the Bible says that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, that they are born again, that they are born anew. And so the Bible even uses the language of organic, natural growth to describe the way that a person who is born and birthed into this new life in Christ may actually grow up and look more like Jesus to actually embrace the kind of life that Jesus wants us to have. And so we've said that, yeah when you start off you're an infant you're using the pacifier you're looking at you're looking at Jesus more as savior because you absolutely need Jesus to do everything for you to rescue you and to bring you into this new life but then we said as you start to grow you become a child you start to interact with Jesus as teacher that maybe actually Jesus has some things that he wants to say in and for you to respond in in your life and maybe Jesus's way is the best way and then we look at We look at growth as like a child to an adolescent that culminates, well, this is interesting, culminates not in adulthood. You would think that the progression is infant, child, adolescent, adult. But actually, the the end result, and what Paul is trying to get us to see here, is that the end result of your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth in Christ is not adulthood. Adulthood. It's not being capable of doing certain things that adults are capable of doing. Instead, the end result of spiritual growth culminates in parenting. The goal of spiritual growth is not just to be an adult. And Paul shows us that that the aim of our growth is spiritual parentage. It is seeing Christ formed in another person. And making it our agonizomai, right? Our struggle, our labor, our toil. Making it our agonizomai to lay our lives down so that another person might tap into the life that is offered to them in Jesus. So the reality is, is that spiritual growth happens, spiritual growth, growth culminates when you and I make disciples of Jesus. See, your growth And your maturity in Jesus culminates when you help to spark growth and maturity in other people. And again, as I mentioned, at at the Medina East Campus, we are just sold out to this. We want to double down on this because we believe it is the the method of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul tapped into that method beautifully. Uh, many of you know uh, Clark Jeanette. He was up here doing announcements earlier and last week um, he, he preached. He gave the message to us. He did a phenomenal job. And uh, many of you know Clark's story uh, because he's not only told it before, he mentioned an as, uh, a couple aspects of those stories last week. But uh, Clark is an awesome guy and uh, I just want us to maybe uh, watch this video of Clark's story. Uh, he gives us a little bit more of it, um, specifically through the lens of this idea of pouring into somebody else for their spiritual growth. See, Clark has embraced this idea of disciple-making and his life, I think you're gonna see, is radically different because someone decided to invest in him for the purpose of him growing spiritually. So maybe in order to put some skin on this, let's watch this real quick and then we'll close up.
1: In 2011, I got invited to a uh, New Perspective Young Adult Central Gathering by my friend in high school and I remember reluctantly going. And at this point in my life, it was a very turbulent time in life because I was using uh, drugs, and it was a very dark time in my life. At this time, I was trying every imaginable remedy. I was going to AA meetings. I remember going to um, NA meetings. And so I'm like, I'll give the Jesus thing a try. Let's see what happens. I'll tell you what, I went there, and I remember meeting Tony for the very first time. And I remember feeling so loved and so accepted. And uh, I ended up coming back because I heard the gospel. And again, I grew up in the church, but I, I didn't know Jesus until about five years ago. I ended up coming to a new perspective. And I remember getting invited again to a Canada trip by Tony and Chris Amon. I reluctantly went to that. <laughs> they said, come on, man, it's gonna be a good time. And, so I'm like, okay. So I took the week off of work and I went. I remember uh, canoeing with Tony out in the lake in Canada. And I specifically remember him. I remember the way he said it and everything. He was like, Clark man, tell me about your life. I was like, man, I gotta be honest. Um, I've been struggling with drugs and um, things aren't good. And I, I, I just don't know about Jesus because I don't think that God would want someone like me in his kingdom and I'll never forget what Tony said he's like he's like that's a lie he's like don't say that to yourself because that's a lie he's like God loves you God sent his son to die for you and you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus and his blood I just remember for the very first time I was able to get a hold of God's grace in my life and I just remember thinking like I am loved and I am accepted and you know what there's a lot of things that I'm not proud of but but I'm covered by Jesus and His righteousness and I remember just that had profound implications in my life that was something that it it was the feeling was unparalleled and what ended up happening that year was so foundational in my walk with Jesus Christ and I don't know how it happened but I ended up just kinda falling into ministry Um, the investment that Tony and Jess had in my life the fact that they accepted me into their home uh, with their family We always say with discipleship that we want it to be intentional, relational, exponential. Uh, Jess and Tony are are a perfect example of what that looks like because they were all three of those in my life. And it's just been so amazing. I've been able to see uh, God work in and through me in amazing ways. And I've had such an incredible experience with the staff at Medina East. Uh, Tony is continuing to be the one who has not only discipled me, and uh, equipped me and invested into me but he's encouraged me and he's been able to give me opportunities to help kind of discover and and grow and strengthen my gifts and I've had opportunities to preach on the weekend I've had opportunities to go and shepherd with him and uh, it's just been so great it's been so influential in my life and I'm just so thankful for the opportunities and so I'm very uh, encouraged to know that there's people who want to love and encourage and invest and um, just help motivate you to to do your best um, to build God's kingdom. I really do believe that um, above all undoubtedly uh, discipleship is definitely the linchpin that holds this structure all together. Without discipleship there's no great commission. Uh, Without discipleship we forfeit the gospel really. This gospel centered movement, uh, the building blocks, for God's kingdom is disciple making. And I've seen that in my own life. I've been able to to uh, be a part of that by discipling other young men in New Perspective. And that has just been an incredible and just an, an unparalleled thing that we get to be a part of. And so it's just so cool. I'm so excited to see uh, what God has done in my life, what he's doing now and what he's gonna continue to do. And so I'm just so encouraged to uh, be a part of this gospel-centered movement in uh, our grace churches and throughout our community.
0: Guys, I just think that is a powerful, powerful story that is a modern-day kind of picture or equivalent of what Paul was doing and what Jesus wants us to do. Guys, Clark's Clark's trajectory, the trajectory of his life is radically different because someone decided that they were going to pour themselves out to invest in him for the purpose of connecting him into the life that he has in Christ. Guys, disciple making again is the method of Jesus. We, we read about this as Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples to himself And this is what he said. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we have to see, this is what Paul wants us to see throughout Colossians and at the end here is that spiritual Spiritual growth and maturity culminates. It reaches its apex when we pour into other people for the purpose of their spiritual growth. As the band comes up, I just want to issue a couple challenges to us in light of this because I just think it's so clear. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. It's right in front of our faces here today. I just want to issue a challenge, Uh, maybe for those of you in this room who need someone to disciple you. you. You know that you need someone to pour into your life and to help you process through this life that you have been given in Jesus and how that, mater- that life that you've been given in Jesus materializes into um, you growing in your faith and growing to look more like Jesus. Some of you here today know that you need poured into and you don't have that in your life right now. In other words, some of you today here, you need a Paul. You, you need a Paul. You need someone to invest in you concretely for the purpose of your spiritual growth. And I would submit to you today, I would challenge you that if you're in a life group and you know that you need a Paul to invest in you in this way, I would challenge you today to prayerfully consider thinking through folks that are already in your life group who you respect and admire and praying about a simple yet bold ask. Ask. A simple yet bold ask to walk up to a person in your life group and say, hey, man, I need somebody. I need to grow. I'm stymied in my growth. I need to press through. Would you disciple me? And, and if, if you're in that camp, though, if you need a Paul and you're not in a life group, uh, guess what I'm going to tell you? <laughs> you got to get into a life group because life groups are the perfect, they're the natural habitat or environment for disciple-making relationships like this to make those connections. If you need a Paul, connect in a life group. Get to know some people and make a bold ask. you got to get discipled. And for another audience, maybe you're here today and uh, you have been connected with Christ for a while. Maybe you are what we would call like a seasoned veteran in Jesus. And maybe you, uh, you have grown spiritually and you're very spiritually mature and, or you claim to be spiritually mature. But I would question if you claim to be spiritually mature and you're not actively engaged or interested in looking around to see people that you can disciple. I would challenge you actually this morning to get some skin in the game. The reality is, is maybe for you, you need an Epaphras. You need someone to pour into, to invest into, to agonizomai for, their, for the purpose of their spiritual growth. And I would submit to you that if you have reservations about that, which I understand that we all do. There are a lot of fears that are associated with that. But the greater fear, the greater tragedy is if we were to do Nothing. The greater tragedy is to do nothing. So if you're a person that's mature in your faith and you are ready to take the next step, listen, you don't have to know every single nook and cranny of the Bible. We say this all the time. You don't have to know every single nook and cranny of the Bible. You don't have to uh, be, have the greatest prayer life. All you have to do is have a heart that is bent toward honoring and serving Jesus, which materializes in you pouring into another person. And if you're unsure or if you're unclear or if you're fearful, I would would probably say go to boot camp. That's what boot camp is all about. And if you've already been to boot camp, you don't want to go there, we have disciple-making trainings that we offer regularly. Go to one of those. Go on our website. We have this thing called E4 that you can leverage, and there's a disciple-making study. Grab another person. Go through that study together and even if you don't want to do that just for heaven's sake go out to the welcome center talk to me just ask for a resource or a book that will help get you connected with discipling another person but let me just tell you guys for both of those audiences whatever you do walking away here today don't do nothing don't do nothing the reality is this growth in Christ culminates in pouring into someone else. It is the way the gospel message gets out to our wider world and goes down through the centuries, producing followers of Jesus that produce followers of Jesus that produce followers of Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, uh, we know what your method is. We know the truth of the fact that you have rescued us from sin and darkness. And you have called us into, as the scripture says, your marvelous light. This new life and this vibrancy that we have, Jesus, is just unreal by your grace. You have given it to us or offered it to us. And for that, we say thank you. God, I pray, Lord, as the same power that brought us from death to life is available to us to work in us, the growth to look more like you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would all just be arrested with the reality of what spiritual growth culminates in. God, we need your spirit and your boldness. We need the confidence that can only come from you to do the hard work to labor and toil to invest in another person so that they can maybe for the first time realize the wonderful potential of growing in Jesus and embracing the life that you offer. God, help us in our spiritual growth never to be so inwardly focused that we think that this whole thing just culminates in us being a really cool-looking adult, but that you desire for us to parent somebody else, to do what Paul did, to, to multiply ourselves and to reproduce ourselves, to have people follow us, Jesus, insofar as we follow you and are shaped by your power and your authority that's resident in our lives. God, help us even as we sing together and as the band plays to prayerfully do good work and asking you who it is that we might disciple or ask to disciple us. God, again, help us by your spirit to get really gripped by this radical, amazing truth, the truth of the gospel, that we would follow you in this way. In Jesus' name, Amen.